When <clears throat> when we make a Buddha statue, the traditional method they use is called the lost wax method, <clears throat> where the original design is made in wax by an artist. <clears throat> And they uh, carve a Buddha image according to the specifications they're given. And then when the sponsor is satisfied, they cover it with plaster and heat the plaster cast and drain off the wax as it becomes hot and molten which and leaves an imprint on the wax which can then be filled with bronze and cast bronze and it's something that uh, teachers often point out you know the difference between the bronze and the wax once the bronze has been cast, the bronze image has been cast, <coughs> there's not a lot you can do to change the characteristics of the image. You can polish off the, uh, the bronze, the sharp edges can be ground off, <coughs> Sometimes there are little holes that they weld or fill. But basically the image has been cast. can only be changed super, superficially. Whereas at the beginning stage with the wax, traditionally beeswax, because it's workable, it's pliable, soft, you can obviously mold it any way you want. <coughs> and a skilled artist will be able to do that sometimes for many days, molding uh, a beautiful Buddha statue, changing things, changing the proportions, uh, adding detail and so on. And the practice of training a human being is a bit like this. In order to train our hearts and minds to come to realize the Dhamma that the Buddha taught, there has to be that softness. Our minds, we have to create the conditions where they're workable, where they're manageable workable, where they can be changed, adapted through the Dhamma practice to see the Dhamma, understand the Dhamma. If our minds are too hard, stiff or stubborn, then obviously the training is more difficult. Maybe superficially we can make some 
small changes to our behavior, the way the mind is working, the way we look at things. But deep down it's hard to make changes if, if there's this inflexibility, or you might say attachment, strong attachment to one's views, one's conceit, a sense of self. So a lot of, uh, of the training that we do as Buddhist monks is bringing to the, the mind to this point where it's workable, pliable, soft. That works on every level. So as we've been hearing with Lumpur Chah's teachings, he emphasized the Vinaya training over and over again. And not just the Patimokha rules, but the rules, we say, the rules outside of the Patimokha, particularly the Abhisamachara rules. Rules and practices to do with our conduct, the way we conduct ourselves, the way we speak, the way we act, where we go, what we do. A lot of these rules we, we could say are minor rules, but Lumpur Chah emphasized them because they make the mind workable when we pay attention to them. <coughs> they give us that refinement of awareness that lays the foundation for deeper states of samadhi and insight to arise. They provide a foundation of purity of mind, purity of conduct, because of that increased attention to detail, refinement of detailed awareness to do with our actions, our speech, in all situations. And that produces a very a constant awareness that can then be translated into the practice of meditation. So you, when you hear the stories about Lumpur Chah, often he wasn't talking about very high dhammas, even though he could be alluding to them with similes and reflections. On the surface, sometimes it seemed like maybe he was talking about very ordinary things, and particularly for well-educated adults, they might overlook the importance of this and think this is almost like childish, but when you understand the whole training and the value of developing this softness, workability, pliable, pliable nature of the mind, is when you see the importance of that and give value to that, then you realize even these small things can matter and can help. So he might give a talk and point out how a monk approaches him to pay respects and takes his shoes, in those days would be thongs, right uh, off, takes the shoes off right in front of him. Whereas the rule requires that we take the shoes off at a respectful distance, you know, a few meters away, around a corner or whatever, and then you approach the senior monk, pay respects. Or if the senior monk is standing, say, on Bindabhata with barefoot, then our 
duty is to take our shoes off so we're not higher than the Ajahn. Or if the senior monk is not using a sitting cloth, then if we place a sitting cloth or a mat down, unless we're ill or have some special reason, then we, again, we're breaking a rule. These very small things were matters that Lumpur Cha might bring up to help arouse this more moment-to-moment awareness, but based on the Vinaya. It's not based on personal preferences or views on the practice. They're all practices and observances that relate back to the Vinaya. It's just emphasizing them as a way of training in the monastic environment as bhikkhus. This is how we train. And it's not that if we forget ourselves then there's some heavy punishment. But we have to be honest and say our purpose for ordaining and being here is to train. Train in sila, train in uh, samadhi, train the jitta, and then train in panya, wisdom. As we put effort into learning the ways of practice, the observances, <clears throat> that does require effort, energy. It requires energy to learn the patimoka, to observe and learn about these rules. And obviously, sometimes we forget or just not aware of some of the minor rules. <clears throat> it's more an attitude thing. You develop the attitude that you're willing to learn and training your mind not just to resist automatically or brush aside things that we seem think are in, unimportant, but to at least be open-minded, willing to learn. And I often compare the brand new bhikkhu to the uh, wild animal caught from the forest that needs to be tamed. It's the mind that needs to be tamed. And our training in the monastic rules and observances is doing that job of taming. So sometimes we do have to learn to go without things that we desire or wish for. Sometimes we have to do jobs or tasks or duties that we're not really interested in or don't really want to do. But to see this is all a process of taming the mind and you know, as we chant in the Metta Sutta, you know, developing the qualities of humbleness, gentleness, being one who's easy to teach. These, these are the qualities that will soften the mind, make it pliable, workable, so that it can receive the Dhamma. The more effort we put into that, the more we'll get back from, from the training. The Buddha and our teachers have proven that the human being can be trained all the way to enlightenment, to to the point where kilesas, the cause of suffering, all our craving, our attachment, <coughs> greed, anger, delusion, and all their offspring can be abandoned. And they've proven that. But our job is to follow in the footsteps of this way of training 
and we're fortunate enough that they've given it to us as living examples that we can observe, listen to and follow. So in the development of, of the jitta, of meditation, training this mind, um, in order to see the truth, you know, we're aiming to penetrate the Four Noble Truths, come to understand them, not intellectually, or not merely intellectually, but through our experience. We need to see the value of developing the right qualities, the correct qualities that will bring results. So they emphasize the purity, parisutho, parisutta, of our actions, our sila, our speech, our actions, as a vital component for that training of the mind. And the way we attain our, obtain our requisites, the way we relate to each other, the way we relate to the laity, it's vital that we see we have to be putting effort into that sila to bring up the quality of parisutho in the mind. The other one is obviously attentiveness, mindfulness, uh, sometimes referred to as samahito, and the ability to direct the mind, to pay attention. And that begins on the outside, pay attention to what we're doing, where we are, what we're involved with, what we're saying, what we're doing, or if we're very quietly, just what we're thinking. But that ability to recollect in the present moment, pay attention and bring the mind that sense of purpose, firmness, directness, which as we learn to meditate with our breathing and the other meditation techniques will merge ultimately in samadhi and maybe very deep states of samadhi there has to be that firmness of mind, the willingness to pay attention. The other quality we're developing with Parisutho, Samahito is Kamaniyo, this workability of mind. We have to bring our mind to this point where it is <clears throat> soft, gentle, so it can realize the truth not just hold on to views, opinions and even beliefs, suspicions, superstitions that we may be formally have been brought up with and just taken for granted. <clears throat> if we're really going to penetrate the Four Noble Truths, there has to be that workability of mind, just like the, the wax has to be soft enough to be shaped into the to the Buddha. In our external training in the Vinaya, in the ways of practice in the monastery, support that, is bringing up a sense of humility and gentleness of mind, the way we relate to each other, the way we relate to the material world. With Parisutho, Samahito, Gamaniyo, these three qualities, these are what bring the mind to have enough stability, mental stability, steadiness, mindfulness, continued awareness that then we can contemplate to understand the Dhamma on a much deeper level than 
what we get from the books and from talks. There's a role for the pariyati in the in our lifestyle. Certainly, nothing wrong with studying, listening, learning. But if we're ever going to progress, to really change this mind, to adjust it, and pull it away from its fixed views, fixed attachments, then there has to be this turning of attention inwards, getting the mind to a state where it's workable. And this is why we do a lot of meditation, sitting, walking meditation, and just mindfulness in daily life, mindfulness of, of what we're doing, the body, our speech and actions from moment to moment. You're always bringing the attention back to the mind and what's arising. In the beginning, it's maybe just observing what's wholesome, what's unwholesome, and learning to abandon the unwholesome, the coarsest kind of unwholesome behavior that leads to conflict and various states of mental agitation because of our external behavior. And then refining that awareness, bringing inside all the time, just to see the nature of thought formations arising and ceasing, even the wholesome, skillful ones. Because this is where the sense of self and where suffering arises, is where we grasp onto things, cling onto our views, opinions, ideas of who we are, what we want. And there has to be a, a refinement of awareness, a workability of mind to be able to stop and for the mind to look back at its own experience, even if it's after the event, you're looking back at a, a mood or a thought pattern that's just arisen, but to be able to see it as Dhamma, using the Four Noble Truths as a framework. There has to be that workability of mind to be able to stop question what are our beliefs, what do I believe in, what do I attach to and cling to, and then follow through, contemplate how that leads on to suffering and see for oneself. We have to be able to see the nature of this body and mind to see how impermanent they are. Constantly I'll be able to reflect back on the impermanent nature of the Rupa Dhamma that we, the, we have, this body, as we age, as we experience the world, hot and cold, tired, energetic, as we s- sense things through our senses, we get sense impressions, sight, sound, taste, smell, touch. And then the thought formations of the Vedana, the feeling, the perceptions and the thought formations that arise based on that sense contact. We have to have that ability to be able to turn around and look at what's going on, to see the process where suffering arises, see how we identify with a sense of self, with everything, every thought, every memory, every feeling. If we don't question that and look and learn, then we can never really progress in the practice. But to be able to to look, to learn from our experience, there has to be the workability of mind. There has to be that 
gentleness, that ability to set things down before we pick them up. And it's not that we never attach to anything or never pick anything up. We do obviously attach to the Vinaya, to the suttas, to the teachings, to what's good karma or bad karma. We use all these concepts and all these things in the beginning. It's not wrong. But we also have to have that flexibility to be able to look at what we are clinging to and is it see it whether it's a useful tool or not. Is it something useful to the practice or not? Or is it becoming a source of suffering? And even our views on Dhamma can become a source of suffering when we argue or resist somebody or dislike what we hear and then get upset about it or angry about it. <clears throat> Constantly we're developing this, this ability to pay attention to our own minds, both in formal meditation and every time, every moment of the day, coming back, looking and learning, and being flexible enough to question even our own views and beliefs on what we think is right, good, what's wrong. <clears throat> Some things we put to the test and we continue to hold to a, a view, a belief, because we found it it's correct so far in our practice, in our life. <coughs> Other times we have to be able to be honest and open and say, well, this, is, this isn't leading to success, this isn't leading to peace, this isn't leading to an improved state of mind, this is leading to more problems. Ultimately, we have to be able to do that for ourselves. Because teachers and Dhamma friends can only point out things, but they can't actually do that job. We have to be responsible for our own practice. Another way they talk about the practice is like it's a process of awakening. And the Buddha is the awakened one. We as students of the Buddha are. going through a process of awakening through our practice. So developing you know, states of wakefulness, states of heedfulness, carefulness, mindfulness. Mindfulness, we talk a lot about these days as you know, people have their different systems and therapies and ways to help people men with mental issues or stress or anxiety. And it's a word that's been used, uh, it's done its job for the last hundred years. But you know, we, as bhikkhus we have to be more complete in our understanding of what is right mindfulness. And that may be you know, knowing, recollecting in the present moment, what our duty is, what what is valuable, what's important in the present moment. So say we're doing our formal meditation, well what's important maybe is putting all our efforts into being mindful of the breath and dropping all the other thoughts and analyses that we, we like to carry on when we're not very mindful. Other times what's important may be just doing a certain duty or task other times it may be being the most important thing is the 
the Vinaya, a certain rule in a situation, keeping that rule rather than breaking it. In mindfulness is that presence of mind, wakefulness, but drawing in all the other path factors. It's the link to wisdom. You know, true awakening isn't simply mindfulness alone. It's the presence of sabhajanya, clear comprehension and wisdom. Panya. Even though we talk a lot about mindfulness, you know, it's really a shorthand for these other qualities as well. As we practice mindfulness, then it does allow our wisdom to function. If there's that gentleness of mind, firmness of mind, purity of sila, then wisdom can function very well. Mindfulness sati is what directs the mind to our task, to our duty or to an object. Wisdom is what contemplates, considers wisely the nature of that object. So to really realize the Four Noble Truths, it has to be a combination of mindfulness and wisdom. As you get older, you need to use glasses, but it's something it's, you learn when you use glasses is you can't use eyeglasses if they're misty or dirty. You have to constantly be cleaning them. What allows our wisdom faculty to function is the, the clarity of mindfulness. It's what allows wisdom to be right there, present in the mind, moment to moment, in a situation. It's all very well reading a lot, remembering a lot of Dhamma. That certainly is a valuable asset in our practice. <coughs> But in the moment, can we bring that Dhamma that we've learned and read to bear? That wisdom, is it there in the moment when, a, say, a, a mental defilement, greed, anger, delusion is arising? And really, the heart of our practice is this merging of mindfulness and wisdom. This is what gives us the clarity. This is the, the wiping away of dust from the eyeglasses so that we can really see clearly the nature of body and mind as anicca, dukkha, anatta. The practice of vipassana, you know, we, everybody nowadays does vipassana retreats, which are good. And it's good that they become mainstream, very common for many people, many of them not Buddhists. But, you know, to do vipassana for 10 days is not really doing Vipassana, it's not really Vipassana, is it? Vipassana means clear seeing. To clearly see, you have to develop the right qualities. The purity, the firmness of mind, but also the workability, malleability of your mind, so that you can turn and look at experience, rather than just keep following a set of beliefs or views that you've inherited from other sources. You know, to see a a mood, a thought, or a sense object as impermanent, you have to be looking clearly. You have to look in order to see. And a lot of vipassana is memories. It's like remembering a teaching and knowing, oh, sights are impermanent. We all can remember that. But to see 
the mind turning to visual awareness, con- visual consciousness arising, observing that sight arising and passing away, observing the feeling that arises, the perception, the label that might arise, and then pass away. You know, that needs to, we need to look carefully and continuously in order to see. Like walking around the monastery, sometimes you see something in a distance. You can quickly judge it if you want. You just see a shape and you might say, well, that's a tree stump or a bird or an animal. But unless you keep looking and observing, you'll never really know for sure. You could just believe your initial thought, oh, it's that. Maybe get nearer and you're surprised that that tree stump starts moving and becomes a kangaroo or something. Or you can keep looking, <clears throat> keep observing, and then the truth becomes obvious to you. <clears throat> you're not surprised because you've looked until you're sure what it is. In practice of contemplation and vipassana, is like that. You have to keep looking, keep observing in order to see clearly. You know, the purpose of the Eightfold Noble Path is to develop sammanyana dasana, knowledge, clear knowledge and vision of the way things are. But that can't be gained just from books and talks. It has to come from applying the mind, observing all our sense contact, observing the nature of this body, this mind, and to see clearly how impermanent it is, it all is. When we see clearly the nature of things as impermanent, then the characteristic of dukkha, suffering or unsatisfactoriness, becomes clear as well. Because what is impermanent doesn't last, <clears throat> cannot be something that brings us permanent happiness. It's unreliable and difficult to be with. Things that change on us, it's hard, isn't it? Just having a human body with its changing feelings and experiences, hunger and then feeling full, tired and then energetic, sick and then healthy. You know, just the human body itself, it's difficult to be with it. Every moment, you know, we sit down, we feel good and then we feel pain. And then we move and we feel good again, and then we feel pain again. If you're watching, observing this, then the dukkha characteristic becomes clear. What's impermanent, what's dukkha, becomes clearly something that is without a self, because we cannot control, make it go the way we want. This body, this mind, the nature of feeling, the nature of perception. We can convince ourselves, as unenlightened beings we tend to do, we convince ourselves that we know the way things are just from memory. But observe your own memory and see how that changes. In memory you ask two monks about an incident that happened five years ago and you'll get two different answers. We can learn to, learn to believe things that didn't happen, happened, or that happened that they didn't happen. Memory is 
and yet when we're not mindful, then we'll grasp onto it as self. That's me, who I am. So if it's an unpleasant memory, that can give rise to a feeling of unpleasant, being an unpleasant person or view of my view of the world, my life is unpleasant, not successful, not happy. <clears throat> Good memories can do the opposite. As we're training the mind to really look and see the way things are, then it's the process of awakening is to see, oh, these things are anicca, dukkha, anatta, without a self-controlling, there's nothing permanent in there, unsatisfactory. As we practice more, then the aim is to be, develop these skills then, the skills in training of sila in the Vinaya and the different observances and rules of a bhikkhu <clears throat> training in mindfulness and development of continuity of mindfulness There's the peace, the calm that comes from that and then developing this workability of mind where we can pause and reflect on our behavior and on our experience, experience of the senses, the experiences of how suffering arises. You know, sense contact leads to feeling. It's a condition for feeling to arise. It's a condition for craving to arise. It's a condition for clinging to arise. And there has to be that ability to turn our attention backward, back to ourselves, to the, this body and mind, and see how suffering arises if we're going to free ourselves from it. But this skill hopefully develops, strengthens over time. We get used to observing and reflecting on experience rather than always just following our reactions and reinforcing our, our views of things. If we really develop this skill well, then it gets easier. You develop the calmness, the workability of the mind. You know, it brings its own result. There's a sense of peace, well-being. We feel at ease within ourselves, and we're at ease to contemplate. Whether it's good memories or bad memories, good experiences, un unpleasant experiences, pleasure or pain, we are able to look at them all as dhamma. We're training our mind to the point where it's just natural, just normal to see these things as dhamma, rather than always following our beliefs and our views and preferences. So tonight is a, <clears throat> a night of practice, so we can dedicate our efforts to development of our practice meditation tonight. And so I'll leave you with these words for your contemplation. <clears throat> 